Chapter Twenty Two of *The Spirit of the Border* by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Leonard Wilson. Chapter Twenty Two. Simon Gertie lolled on a blanket in Half King's teepee. He was alone, awaiting his allies. Rings of white smoke curled lazily from his lips as he puffed on a long Indian pipe and gazed out over the clearing that contained the village of peace. Still water has something in its placid surface significant of deep channels, of hidden depths. The dim outline of the forest is dark with meaning, suggestive of its wild internal character. So Simon Gertie's hard bronzed face betrayed the man. His degenerate brother's features were revolting, but his own were striking and fell short of being handsome only because of their craggy hardness. Years of revolt, of bitterness, of consciousness of wasted life, had graven their stern lines on that copper mask-like face. Yet, despite the cruelty there, the forbidding shade on it, as if a reflection from a dark soul, it was not wholly a bad countenance. Traces still lingered, faintly, of a man in whom kindlier feelings had once predominated. In a moment of pique, Gertie had deserted his military post at Fort Pitt and become an outlaw of his own volition. Previous to that time, he had been an able soldier and a good fellow. When he realized that his step was irrevocable and that even his best friends condemned him, he plunged with anger and despair in his heart into a war upon his own race. Both of his brothers had long been border ruffians whose only protection from the outraged pioneers lay in the faraway camps of hostile tribes. George Gertie had so sunk his individuality into the savages that he was no longer a white man. Jim Gertie stalked over the borderland with a bloody tomahawk, his long arm outstretched to clutch some unfortunate white woman, and with his hideous smile of death. Both of these men were far lower than the worst savages, and it was almost wholly to their deeds of darkness that Simon Gertie owed his infamous name. Today, White Chief, as Gertie was called, awaited his men. A slight tremor of the ground caused him to turn his gaze. The Huron Chief, half-king, resplendent in his magnificent array, had entered the teepee. He squatted in a corner, rested the bowl of his great pipe on his knee, and smoked in silence. The habitual frown of his black brow, like a shaded overhanging cliff, the fire flashing from his eyes as a shining light is reflected from a dark pool, his closely shut, bulging jaw, all bespoke a nature lofty in its Indian pride and arrogance, but more cruel than death. Another chief stalked into the teepee and seated himself. It was Pipe. His countenance denoted none of the intelligence that made Wingenund's face so noble. It was even coarser than Half-King's, and his eyes resembling live coals in the dark, the long, cruel lines of his jaw, the thin, tightly closed lips, which looked as if they could relax only to utter a savage command, expressed fierce cunning and brutality. "'White chief is idle to-day,' said Half-King, speaking in the Indian tongue. King, I am waiting. Gertie is slow, but sure. 
answered the renegade. The eagle sailed slowly round and round, up and up, replied Half King with majestic gestures, until his eye sees all, until he knows his time. Then he folds his wings and swoops down from the blue sky like the forked fire. So does White Chief. But Half King is impatient. Today decides the fate of the village of peace, answered Gertie imperturbably. Ah, oh, grunted Pipe. Half King vented his approval in the same meaning exclamation. An hour passed. The renegades smoked in silence. The chiefs did likewise. A horseman rode up to the door of the teepee, dismounted, and came in. It was Elliot. He had been absent twenty hours. His buckskin suit showed the effect of hard riding through the thickets. "'Hello, Bill. Any sign of Jim?' was Curtis greeting to his lieutenant. "'Nary. He's not been seen near the Delaware camp. He's after that chap who married Wins.' "'I thought so. Jim's rounding up a tenderfoot who will be a bad man to handle if he has half a chance. I saw as much the day he took his horse away from Silver. He finally did for the Shawnee, and almost put Jim out.' My brother oughtn't to give rein to personal revenge at a time like this. Gertie's face did not change, but his tone was one of annoyance. Well, Jim said he'd be here today, didn't he? Today is as long as we allowed to wait. He'll come. Where's Jake and Mac? They're here somewhere, drinking like fish and raising hell. Two more renegades appeared at the door, and entering the teepee, squatted down in Indian fashion. The little wiry man with a wizened face was McKee. The other was the latest acquisition to the renegade force, Jake Deering, deserter, thief, murderer, everything that is bad. In appearance he was of medium height, but very heavily, compactly built, and evidently as strong as an ox. He had a tangled shock of red hair, a broad, bloated face, big dull eyes like the openings of empty furnaces and an expression of beastliness. Deering and McKee were intoxicated. "'Bad time for drinking,' said Gertie, with disapproval in his glance. "'Life's that to you,' growled Deering. "'I'm here to do your work, and I reckon it'll be done better if I'm drunk.' "'Don't get careless,' replied Gertie, with that cool tone and dark look, such as dangerous men use. I'm only saying it's a bad time for you, because if this bunch of frontiersmen happened to get on to you being the renegade that was with the Chippewas and got that young feller's girl, there's liable to be trouble. They ain't a going to find out. Where is she? Back there in the woods. Maybe it's as well. Now don't get so drunk you blab all you know. We've lots of work to do without having to clean up Williamson's bunch rejoined gertie bill tie up the tent flaps and we'll get to council elliot arose to carry out the order and had pulled in the deer hide flaps when one of them was jerked outward to disclose the befrilled person of jem gertie except for a discoloration over his eye he appeared as usual grunted pipe who was glad to see his renegade friend half king evinced the same feeling hello was simon gertie's greeting "'Pears I'm on time for the picnic,' said Jim Curdy, with his ghastly leer. 
Bill Elliott closed the flaps after giving orders to the guard to prevent any Indians from loitering near the teepee. "'Listen,' said Simon Gertie, speaking low in the Delaware language, "'the time is ripe. We've come here to break forever the influence of the white man's religion. Our councils have been held. We shall drive away the missionaries and burn the village of peace.' He paused, leaning forward in his exceeding earnestness, with his bronzed face lined by swelling veins, his whole person made rigid by the murderous thought. Then he hissed between his teeth, What shall we do with these Christian Indians? Pipe raised his war club, struck it upon the ground, then handed it to Half King. Half King took the club and repeated the action. Both chiefs favored the death penalty. Feed them to their buzzards, croaked Jim Gertie. Simon Gertie knitted his brow in thought. The question of what to do with the converted Indians had long perplexed him. No, said he. Let us drive away the missionaries, burn the village, and take the Indians back to camp. We'll keep them there. They'll soon forget. Pipe does not want them, declared the Delaware. Western Indians shall never sit around half-king's fire, cried the Huron. Simon Gertie knew the crisis had come, that but few moments were left him to decide as to the disposition of the Christians, and he thought seriously. Certainly he did not want the Christians murdered. However cruel his life and great his misdeeds, he was still a man. If possible, he desired to burn the village and ruin the religious influence, but without shedding blood. Yet with all his power, he was handicapped and that by the very chiefs most nearly under his control. He could not subdue this growing Christian influence without the help of Pipe and Half-King. To these savages a thing was either right or wrong. He had sown the seed of unrest and jealousy in the savage breasts, and the fruit was the decree of death. As far as these Indians were concerned, this decision was unalterable. On the other hand, if he did not spread ruin over the village of peace, the missionaries would soon get such a grasp on the tribes that their hold would never be broken. He could not allow that, even if he was forced to sacrifice the missionaries along with their converts, for he saw in the growth of this religion his own downfall. The border must be hostile to the whites, or it could no longer be his home. To be sure, he had aided the British in the revolution, and could find a refuge among them. But this did not suit him. He became an outcast because of failure to win the military promotion which he had so much coveted. He had failed among his own people. He had won a great position in an alien race, and he loved his power. To sway men, Indians, if not others, to his will, to avenge himself for the fancied wrong done to him, to be great, had been his unrelenting purpose. He knew he must sacrifice the Christians, or eventually lose his own power. He had no false ideas about the converted Indians. He knew they were innocent, that they were a thousand times better off than the pagan Indians, that they had never harmed him, nor would they ever do so. But if he allowed them to spread their religion, there was an end of Simon Gertie. His decision was characteristic of the man. He would sacrifice anyone, or all, to retain his supremacy. 
he knew the fulfillment of the decree as laid down by pipe and half king would be known as his work his name infamous now would have an additional horror and ever be remembered by posterity in unspeakable loathing in unsoftening wrath he knew this and deep down in his heart awoke a numbed chord of humanity that twinged with strange pain what awful work he must sanction to keep his vaunted power more bitter than all was the knowledge that to retain this hold over the indians he must commit a deed which so far as the whites were concerned would take away his great name and brand him a coward he briefly reviewed his stirring life singularly fitted for a leader in a few years he had risen to the most powerful position on the border he wielded more influence than any chief he had been opposed to the invasion of the pioneers and this alone without his sagacity or his generalship would have given him control of many tribes but hatred for his own people coupled with unerring judgment a remarkable ability to lead expeditions and his invariable success had raised him higher and higher until he stood alone he was the most powerful man west of the alleghanies his fame was such that the british had importuned him to help them and had actually in more than one instance given him command over british subjects all of which meant that he had a great even though an infamous name no matter what he was blamed for no matter how many dastardly deeds had been committed by his depraved brothers and laid to his door he knew he had never done a cowardly act that which he had committed while he was drunk he considered as having been done by the liquor and not by the man he loved his power and he loved his name in all gertie's eventful ignoble life neither the alienation from his people the horror they ascribed to his power nor the sacrifice of his life to stand high among the savage races nor any of the cruel deeds committed while at war hurt him a tithe as much as did this sanctioning the massacre of the christians although he was a vengeful unscrupulous evil man he had never acted the coward half king waited long for gertie to speak since he remained silent the wily huron suggested that they take a vote on the question let us burn the village of peace drive away the missionaries and take the christians back to the delaware towns all without spilling blood said gertie determined to carry his point if possible i say the same added elliot refusing the war club held out to him by half king me too voted mckee not so drunk but that he understood the lightning-like glance gertie shot at him kill them all kill everybody cried deering in drunken glee he took the club and pounded with it on the ground pipe repeated his former performance as also did half king after which he handed the black knotted symbol of death to jim gertie three had declared for saving the christians and three for the death penalty six pairs of burning eyes were fastened on the death's head pipe and half king were coldly relentless deering awoke to a brutal earnestness mckee and elliot watched with bated breath these men had formed themselves into a tribunal to decide on the life or death of many and the situation if not the greatest in their lives 
certainly was one of vital importance. Simon Gertie cursed all the fates. He dared not openly oppose the voting, and he could not, before those cruel but just chiefs, try to influence his brother's vote. As Jim Gertie took the war club, Simon read in his brother's face the doom of the converted Indians, and he muttered to himself, Now tremble and shrink, all you Christians. Jim was not in a hurry. Slowly he poised the war club. He was playing as a cat plays with a mouse. He was glorying in his power. The silence was that of death. It signified the silence of death. The war club descended with violence. Feed the Christians to the buzzards. End of chapter 22 of The Spirit of the Border by Zane Gray. Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio.